Hey everybody, Doug here. Before we get started with the show, I want to tell you about a new book that Peter and I have published called From the Earth to the Moon, the miniseries Companion. If you love space and space exploration and movies and television shows about space and space exploration, this is for you. If you think you've read it all and know everything there is to know about the moon flights, we want you to think again. Uh, in 1998, the landmark TV series, From the Earth to the Moon, aired on HBO in 12 episodes, told the daring story of NASA's Project Apollo to put humans on the moon. Our book provides a comprehensive and detailed analysis of each episode of the miniseries and covers Apollo from start to finish and then some. It's more than a simple episode guide. Our companion reevaluates the entire Apollo program, both within and outside the context of the HBO series. We review the choices that the filmmakers made regarding the actors, special effects, and historical accuracy in every episode. We show what they got right, what they got wrong, and what they didn't tell you about each of the historic moon flights. Um, we cover all manned Apollo missions, the creation of the lunar module, the Apollo 1 fire and its aftermath, the personal and professional highs and lows of the astronauts, and lots of key NASA personnel. As an added bonus, the book includes an in-depth interview that I did with Andrew Chaikin, author of A Man on the Moon, the book that was the basis for the entire miniseries. It also includes 35 great images, many of which I can guarantee you've never seen before. Um, you can buy the book on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or any of the book reader platforms. Uh, again, uh, we hope you check it out, and uh, on to the show. Thanks. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. You've got speed, John Glenn. Okay, everybody, welcome to episode six of the Right Stuff Companion. Uh, I am Doug, as always, and I am joined uh, by Peter. Peter, welcome to the show. Welcome, Doug. Okay, yeah, here we are. Uh, we are... We're getting to the end. Like we're uh, we are now at episode six, titled Vostok, uh, which aired on November sixth of twenty twenty, and was directed by Nick Copas and written by Amini Rosa. Um, and uh, as you guys will remember, uh, this episode comes immediately on the heels of uh, Shepard. Uh, Grissom and Glenn finding out that they are the sort of so-called first team, right? They are they are going to be the first three astronauts and in that order. And the last episode ended with sort of Al Shepard and Triumph and uh, John Glenn having a, a career low moment when he realizes that all of his sort of brown-nosing and ass-kissing efforts have worked against him. Right, because everything came down to the peer vote that we saw at the end of the last episode. Right, and so they start off with a uh, press conference where they announce that those three men are going to be the the first team. Um, what so an obnoxious term, by yeah. the way! And they don't say what the exact order is going to be. Right, it's all kept a secret, and you know they don't actually explain so much why they keep the or the, like who is going to be first a secret which is a little odd to be totally honest like you know like like it's a little uh, why exactly did they not say that shepherd was going to be first like what was really gained by revealing that you know literally as he's about to launch and what was gained by even having a first three 
Like there wasn't much gained in in any well, way. Really, you could see. Well, actually, I disagree with that part. You could see why there's a benefit to picking the first three because then they can give them priority training and simulator time. That actually makes sense, right? Yeah, right? I guess and that's NASA, true. And NASA sort of has a habit throughout its whole history of like you know you prioritize the people going up sooner next, and you know if you're not going up sooner next, like you get your simulator time at two a.m. on a Thursday, right, when the thing is free. Especially also because before all of this happened, uh, before Gagarin went up, so before that they still had funding constraints and they were still struggling until that event happened when all of a sudden panic ensued in the United States and there was unlimited, uh, there were unlimited resources available for them. So they could have had, you know, 20 simulators after that. Mm, yeah. Um, so they're called in to meet the press and they're given this obnoxious the uh, you know first team appellation you could imagine by the way how that went over with Gus and Deke and the other guys right what are they are the junior varsity guys right well, after after being said that these are the seven best pilots in America <laughs> well Gus is um, one of them but yeah all the other dudes yeah they're all I'm sure pissed oh yeah Gordo I mean yeah um and you know uh, Shepard sits there with the shit eating grin the whole time <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He knows, like, he did it. Um, and and Glenn looks unhappy and on edge. And, you know, he he forces a smile, like, for the cameras. Like, it's, it's all he can do to smile. Yeah. And, um, um, and then poor Gus just wants it over with. Gus hates the press. Gus <laughs> does not want it. He, he does not write. He doesn't actually, neither does Shepard. The two of them just, they don't really want to talk to the press. Yeah, although Shepard, he's happy to today. You know, like today of all days, he is happy to get out there in front <laughs> of cameras. You know, they then cut to Glenn and Wainwright who are driving in the snow. And this is kind of a paraphrase of, of a scene in the book. Um, and, you know, in the in, here in the show, Wainwright, you know, he kind of says to Glenn something along the lines of, like, I know you're number one. I know it's going to be you, you know, like, I don't understand this fiction. Um, and the way that this is uh, portrayed in the book is uh, Glenn is uh, driving in his prins, I think, uh, in the snow. And he's like struggling to listen to Kennedy on the radio. And, um, you know, he knows that he is not going to be first. And he is just, he is really, really having a hard time holding it together because he's still reeling from the, you know, what he perceives as a huge defeat at the hands of Shepard. Right. Um, and then, you know, Glenn, he kind of, boy, talk about portraying Glenn in a negative way in this episode. But, um, you know, Glenn kind of comes with this idea that he kind of spins off of what Wainwright is saying that, you know, if it's not announced who's first, then he still has time to maneuver. And maneuver he does. And boy, yeah. talk about is the low point of the show's sort of portrayal of Glenn. I mean, talk, he really, if you could see him in any kind of positive or sympathetic light before, it gets tough in this episode because the, they show him at this point basically doing every underhanded possible thing to tear down Shepard. And pulling his strings and calling in favors, right? Yeah, I and mean, he's even writing to the letters. point that right, even Annie can't get behind this. Like when, when, it's when the full sort of extent of his machinations are revealed, even Annie 
like she's she's like embarrassed and ashamed like oh my god like you're going too far you know it kind of reminds me of and although we're going out of sequence uh in terms of real life we're going in sequence in terms of television production it kind of reminds me of um uh episode six of from the earth to the moon mayor tranquilitatis where brian cranston who plays um buzz aldrin in that episode sort of like he does a lot of machinations to see if he can be the first one to step out on Apollo 11 and screw over Neil. And it, you know, it, it, it works about equally well for both uh, Buzz and John Glenn in the two shows. Like that's true. Blows up in their faces and they get a ton of pushback. And we were and talking, their reputations are damaged forever. Right. And we were talking about before that we haven't seen it uh, in what we've read, um, especially you, you know, you've read, pretty much everything that's been written about, um, at least sort of in public, uh, normal circles, it's been written about uh, about the space program. And we haven't seen anything saying that Glenn had gone to those extremes where he actually wrote letters to Congress. In reality, I don't know if it's true. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. But he did write one letter, but we'll get to that. We're jumping ahead a little bit. So... Um, we then cut to Wally at the bar with a couple of cookies. Um, and then he is sort of forced to acknowledge to these women that uh, he's not in the top three, right? And then he, he goes over to the remainder of the other four at the bar, and they're all kind of wondering where they stand. Right, you're really hitting them where it hurts and their ability to pick up floozies. <laughs> right, <laughs> Hey, look, every job's got to have its perks. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. But now they're the second team, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. No, maybe they get second tier cookies, perhaps. Right. Um, and then there's a, there's a kind of a silly moment that they didn't need where uh, Gordo cuts his hand on some broken glass. And it's sort of like this this heavy-handed nonsense where it's shades of his cut hand in the 104 incident that we saw in the first episode where the fictional guy died. And it's just to show that he still feels very guilty about it. Honestly, it's kind of a silly scene. It's sort of hearkening back to something that didn't make a big impression on the viewer in the beginning, and they could have just cut, I think. It looks like they trimmed it down, but then I don't know what they were. It, yeah, they left in something that didn't yeah. need to be there. It, and it, it slows the scene down. It would have been better if it was just Wally at the bar with the girls and, and they could move on. Yeah, I agree. And then um, we then cut to a good scene. Any scene with Kraft and Gilrath, I really like in this show, especially the guy who plays Gilrath, I think is great. Yeah. And then Kraft and Gilrath meet with the first team. They tell them that uh, Wiesner, uh, Kennedy's science advisor, is going to review everything because he just flat out says that jfk is worried about them dying right public he's worried about a public relations disaster and then the other thing to notice mm -hmm. as i've alluded to before this is before this is 1960 so gagarin went up in what april 61 april 61 so this is april basically 12th. right this is during 1960 so it's before anybody um any well is flights. it i think this is supposed to be early 61 it might one, be because we saw the new year's party in the earlier episode oh that's Remember where true. they thought wiesner was going to come and that was so now we can assume the election of 1960 that's has taken true. place 
So it's early 61 and JFK is now in office. Right. So it's a couple months before Gagarin went up, probably. Right. Um, and then Wiesner's coming in person, right, to issue a report and see things for himself. And they're they're worried that maybe he's really just coming to get ammunition to shut them down. Yeah. Um, you know, which did actually, uh, I believe, happen in real life. Like Wiesner did come um, and and oversee some things you know he uh he ends up in real life he does sort of create this thing called the the wiesner report which is published in early january of 61 um and he basically he was actually critical that there was not a lot of science going on like he basically said like you know like if it's just a crash program to put somebody in orbit it's kind of hard to justify scientifically like that at the time was wiesner's kind of main concern um so i mean at that time you know he was uh uh, he was also leading the President's Science Advisory Committee, the PSAC, as they say. And I think the PSAC did spend five days in Florida and at Langley and at uh, other sites to basically look over the capsule and everything and get a sense of if everything uh, was going to be in order. And believe it or not, um, the report of uh, the President's Science Advisory Council is delivered to the president on April 12th, 1961. Oops. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Instantly updated. <laughs> right, exactly. I had this sort of vision of somebody just throwing it into the air and the, the pages sort of flying down as individual leaves. <laughs> right? Like, well, that's a waste of time. Yeah. Um, Al is still struggling with his mini airs, right? There's an interesting camera shot where he falls in the shower and the camera kind of falls with him. I thought that was actually kind of well done. Yeah, Al, it makes they make Al look sick as a dog. Yeah. They do a good job with that. Yeah, many years as well. When I was in school, a, a good friend of mine, his father had many years, and uh, he he talked about how his father, sort of similar to Al Shepard, like he had to completely stop driving to the point that you know this was way before Uber, that um, they had to hire a driver because his you know his mom couldn't do it because both his parents worked, so like they literally had to hire a driver to sort of drive his father back and forth to work because there was no bus where he worked. Hmm. So, you know, it, it sounds awful. Um, and then there's kind of an interesting scene where the, the, the three uh, first team astronauts are sort of paraded around at the Starlight Motel uh, in front of uh, Wiesner and his uh, flunkies doing an egress drill where they go up through the nose of the Mercury capsule in the is, motel is, swimming pool yeah that's which what is, I said, the starlight that's yeah but it's like they do the motel swimming pool it's like the it's the most low budget i think it's a nice contrast because they're doing i mean talk about done on a shoestring and like half-assed right they're in this this motel on the beach you know like swimming pool they're doing tests about the u.s the hotel looks kind of seedy to be totally honest right because it, that was better than the hangar you know but it's still right. but they basically live there and they they do this like in the swimming pool at the hotel they do in like an official u.s space program safety test right you know, like a kid to, peeing in the shallow end 10 feet away right next to the duck floaty you know like 
Although in real life, this none of this actually happened. Yeah, it does, however, make an excellent contrast to like after um, the Russians actually fly and orbit, and mm -hmm. it's you know that's the best thing that could happen for the nascent manned space program at NASA. Yeah, the, so the, yeah. the astronauts actually did train to exit the Mercury capsule through the nose, but they practiced that at Langley in Virginia. They didn't do it at the at the hotel there. Right. But, you know, the, the point of the scene is, is two things. One is they're sort of being trotted out like props. And then the other thing is that Al has an attack of many errors while he's in the capsule trying to egress. Right, and he still does it. Right. He has to sort of play it off like, you know, go, oh, everything's fine. I got out just fine. We're all good. But, you know, like for Al, that is a very, very close call because to be seen to be ill in front of Wiesner, he'd be out. Yeah. Right. Like he's lucky that uh, the, the mock up of the Mercury capsule there doesn't have a window. So nobody can look in and see that how, how hard he is struggling. Right. Uh, and then we kind of arrive at the, the the sort of the centerpiece and the emotional low point of the episode where uh, Annie wakes up in the middle of the night, Annie Glenn, and and John is not in bed, right? And this, you know, if this was any other astronaut, you'd think he was off on a on an escapade with a cookie, but he's not. He's in he's sitting in the bathtub dressed, um, and he's typing a letter. Um where he uses the phrase in the show, at least, that Shepard has moral turpitude. And he really feels that Al doesn't deserve, you know, the first flight and the accolades that he is getting. And Annie, boy, does she come down negative on this. And she says, boy, this is wrong. Like, you can't do this. Yeah, she's right. I mean, it is, it's, talk about moral turpitude. It's really slimy. Well, and, you know, there's a difference between writing the letter and sending it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like, like you could forgive Glenn if he wrote this letter out of anger and then tore it up or put it in his desk and never mailed it. But yeah. he, he goes that last step in the show. And he feels so entitled that, you know, because he was able to kind of help out to bury the story when Shepard was in Tijuana or wherever the hell he was. Yeah, and he's self-righteous about it. Big time. Right. He bad, me good. You cannot you can't identify with him anymore at this point. Yeah, he and he's lost, right? He's lost you and he's lost Annie too, you know. Right. Like she's she she recognizes how this will be perceived and that it will it will harm him. Yeah. And she's she's saying it's not it's just not him. What is so what's in happening? his in his uh, otherwise lousy autobiography, John Glenn, a memoir, which we've talked about earlier in the show, Glenn says that he did write a letter, uh, but he only gave it to Gilruth. So, mm. so, you know, that's the only thing I could sort of find out about this. Um, and it, it doesn't sound like he wrote a million letters, but he did write a letter and give it to their superior. Although Glenn said in the book that it just sort of vanished down a black hole. Like he never got a response and nobody talked about it. And he interpreted that response as, you know, Shepard's first, like shut the fuck up. Right. Shepard's first. You know, which is, again, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's, you know, it's like, um, 
when when Buzz Aldrin in from the Earth to the Moon, he goes over, you know, Deke Slayton's head, right? I'm jumping around a little bit, but, you know, at that point, Deke is head of the astronaut office, and, you know, like when he goes above his head to George Lowe and people like that and NASA, you know, and it, it comes down on him from above where he's just explicitly told, like, Neil's the first man out. Like, that's the end. Don't ever bring this up again. Like, no one wants to hear this. You're threatening your position at this point. Right, right. We could find plenty of other guys fit into the silver suit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, just to go back to sort of Annie and John, it's a it's a good scene. Like, doesn't she take the letter and put it away? Like, she puts it in the nightstand or something. Yeah, I think she takes Yeah, it. she takes the letter away. She's so upset she takes the letter away and she puts it in the nightstand. Yeah. Um uh cons considering sorry, keeping with the melodrama, we then see Gordo get a call from his daughter, and she says to to Gordo that she's worried that something is wrong with her. Um, and he he finds out for the first time about the incident where she crashed her bike by riding it with her eyes closed, where she hits the car. And then Gordo actually, in a pretty humanizing moment, he takes the blame and says, like, well, man, I'm a little crazy. Maybe you got it from me. It's not your fault. Yeah. Um, and then Trudy, we find out, is listening in on the extension. Remember when listening in on the extension, how awesome that was? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like when your parents were on a call or, you, I don't know, my brother used to make calls to his friends and I used to listen in all the time. Um, yeah, that's what you could do when there was an actual, you know, like foam with a wire. <laughs> You know, right, connected to the wall. And then hey, just pick up the other extension. Slight drop in volume too. Then yeah. And my brother, my brother and I were so sneaky, we discovered that if before you took the phone off the receiver, you could unscrew the mouthpiece and take out the the little mic. So of that course there was no noise there. So Trudy, Trudy is Cooper is listening in on the extension. And like it's a little bit of a good moment where, you know, like we actually see Gordo being a good father. Like, look at that. Yeah, he seems to be trying. Yeah, he seems to be trying. Yeah, I, I, I'm just always struck by how different a portrayal this is of, uh, of Gordo Cooper than in the right stuff movies, you know, the way that Dennis Quaid portrays him. Mm -hmm. he's a lot more likable and, and in some ways conflicted here, you know, whereas we only get the teeniest little bit of a glimpse of, of Gordo as a good guy in the right stuff movie. Just that one scene at the end of the Texas barbecue. Um, and then Annie wakes up and she discovers that the letters are gone from the nightstand drawer. And the implication is John has given into his absolute worst instincts and mailed them. Mm -hmm. Ugh. It shows you, like, you know, like, there's a lot of value in, like, taking a moment to think. You know, like, he sent those letters when he was hot and bothered and pissed. You I know, mean, it like, was still at least the next day, though. Yeah, but, you know, you could imagine, like, if he'd taken a few days and cooled off, he probably wouldn't have done it. But, you mm -hmm. know, he's just, he's just so, so, like, offended by Al. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we then get to Ham, right? Ham, uh, our our chimp, our chimp or not. Um, uh, Gilruth tells Al that they plan to send a chimp up on a suborbital lob, um, and they are, you know, this is this is a lot of fodder for comedy in the right stuff movie. Um, you know, where there's like a scene where in the movie. Uh, where 
back after Ham does his flight, you know, where um, Chuck Yeager and Ridley are back at Edwards looking at the, you know, the photo of Ham on the cover of Life magazine. And they're just, you know, it, it is proving everything that they have said all along that the astronauts are not really pilots, right? They're literally doing the same job as a monkey. Right. They are, they do not have the right stuff. <laughs> yeah. According to Jaeger. Um, and then, uh, but you know what? This in this show, they make it, they explicitly attribute the chimp being launched as um, a consequence of attention from PSAC, attention from Wiesner and the Kennedy administration. Um, when in reality, it's more likely that that was just part of the program is that they would do animal tests just the way the Russians put up the dog Laika um, beforehand and we put up chimpanzee beforehand. Yeah. Ham, his name was Ham, which, which is actually a, a kind of a joke. Ham is actually, uh, it stands for Holloman Aeromedical, mm -hmm. uh, where the, the chimpanzee flight candidates were, were trained. His actual name, believe it or not, Ham's actual name, I'm not kidding, was number 65. That's his actual name. And he was only given the name Ham after he landed. Um, yeah, and what happened to 1 through 64? <laughs> Although, believe it or not, prior to the flight, like the, 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 the chimp handlers didn't call him number 65, even though that was his official appellation. They called him Chop Chop Chang. <laughs> I'm not making that up. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. That is weird. Here's the most amazing thing about uh, ham. Are you ready? Yeah. Ham died in 1983. Damn. Think about that. Holy crap -aroni. He didn't end up in that um, Floridian, like, you know, primate rest home thing where they rip people's faces <laughs> off by accident. <laughs> <laughs> no. Ham, uh, after, uh, after the flight and some studies, Ham ended up at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. And then... Uh, towards the end of his life, he was moved to the North Carolina Zoo, and he died on January 19th, 1983, which is absolutely incredible. Did he get a pension from NASA? <laughs> I don't know. He should have got all the banana, All the banana pills you can eat. He kept trying to blast off from the uh, zoo swinging tire. <laughs> right. So Ham flies on uh, Mercury Redstone 2 on January 31st, 1961. So now we have a hard date for where we are in real life. Um, and in real life, the Mercury capsule uh, partially decompressed. But Ham, who wasn't really in a space suit, he was kind of in like a pill, like this sort of like pill-shaped metal container. It looked kind of like a laundry basket. Um, that did not decompress. Uh, he flew for 16 minutes and 39 seconds. And um, the Redstone booster was slightly overpowered during the flight. So he had a rough ride. He pulled a lot of Gs on launch and reentry, and he landed 130 miles off course in real life, which Wiesner in the show is very hostile about. But they're able to defend the program and basically say, like, look, everything worked. He got back safe. And Von Braun does take some of the heat for the Redstone's performance, and he takes a little bit of the blame off of NASA. Um, right. And then uh, Gilruth gives Wiesner kind of like a, you know, uh, a, a sort of like, I don't know, like 
schmaltzy speech about what's really at stake, their way of life, and they can't be timid. By the way, I'm putting um, a link to um, Ham and some info okay. about him in the show notes. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there's kind of this implication that that uh, Gilruth is successful in kind of getting through to Wiesner. Like, look, this is more, this is about more than just putting a guy in orbit. This is about our way of life and capitalism versus communism and freedom versus communism. And like, you know, like we're, there's more at stake here. Right. Um, it's a good scene. Again, the guy who plays Gilruth, I keep coming back to this because I kind of feel like in some ways he's the best actor in the show. You know, like he's got a tough job and a complex role. And, you know, in the Right Stuff movie, Gilruth is only shown in a few scenes. He has an altercation with Glenn in one scene. Um, he's seen introducing the seven Mercury astronauts to the press. But other than that, Gilruth plays very, very little role in the Right Stuff movie. Right. Uh, but they've really, really turned him into just a huge character here. Yeah, um, which is good. It's one of the best things about the series. Yeah, no, it is. And the, I keep saying this, the guy who plays him just does a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, about the, and the guy who plays him is Patrick Fischler. We've mentioned him before. Um, and then we have a, a sort of goofball scene uh, that, I don't know, I personally thought they didn't need where we then cut to the bar, which I assume is at the starlight or something. And the Germans are singing in German. And this is something that's alluded to in the right stuff book that sort of makes all the, uh, all the, the, you know, the Americans kind of uncomfortable, like these sort of German beer hall drinking songs. You know, it's like another reminder, like they surrounded by these former Nazis. <laughs> Uh, Deutschland bet, Uber <laughs> I bet you the Russians <laughs> didn't let their German scientists sing German songs. No, no. First they pulled out all their teeth <laughs> and sent them to the gulag, you know. No, no, no. They had to work on the rocket. Right. No, then when they came back, they worked on the rocket, was my point. Yeah. But there was, I'm telling you, there was not even a thought to singing in a beer hall. Yeah. And then a sort of a drunk Von Braun spills the beans. Uh, and and kind of says to Alec, the flight order is changing. You guys are the wink, weak link. It's not me, and it's not my rockets, and it's not my engineers. We know about your secret weakness, which sends Al into a panic. Yeah, Al thinks that somebody's discovered that he's got vertigo, and he's right. going to get so, bumped. Right, so he runs and has a, a real confrontation with D. O'Hara, the nurse, and blames her and accuses her of outing him. Um, and uh, she, of course, correctly denies it. And, uh, you know, this is kind of a good example of in the same episode, we see Smiling Al and the Icy Commander. Like, we see how quickly Al can turn on a dime, right? This has been alluded to, for example, in other media and is explicitly discussed in From the Earth to the Moon. Right. Um, With but the he photo. does. He, yeah. Uh, right. Like the, his, his secretary would put a photo up outside his office of either Al Shepard smiling or Al Shepard looking stern so that people who had to meet with him knew who they were going to get when they walked into the meeting or they could just abort the meeting and run away. Right. <laughs> you know, if the mean if the IC commander <laughs> was in, they could just turn to a 180 and skedaddle down the hall. Right. But, you know, there's a there's a good thing in this scene. Where Al actually admits, like, like she says, D says to him, like, look, you don't even want people 
to like you. And then Al, he does flat out say, like, of course I want people to like me. And like, it's an interesting moment. Like, even Al Shepard cares about what other people think. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed this, but behind Al in this entire scene is a diagram of the inner ear, like a poster-sized diagram right. of the inner ear. Like you'd see like at your pediatrician's office. Um, and then she says to him, I can't tell you anything. You've got to go talk to craft. Um, and then, you know, Al storms off to find craft immediately. And then we then uh, cut, uh, keeping with our theme of melodrama this episode, we then cut to the Glenn household. And John comes home and Annie is very awkwardly entertaining Bob Gilreth, right? They're literally having tea or coffee, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, like he, he looks at Annie's expression and he knows, like, as they say on the internet, it was at this moment that he knew he fucked up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And then Annie kind of gives him the stink eye and very, very quickly excuses herself from the room. Yeah. You know, and then Glenn is there alone in his living room with Gilruth. Um, who produces six he he produces six copies of the letter that that people have given to him. Like uh, people up the food chain were smart enough to see this letter for the damaging property that it actually is, and they diverted the letters to Gilruth. Right. Um it's this is I think maybe the most interesting scene of the movie because it's kind of Glenn's chickens come home to roost, you know. Like this is the this is the dust up that, you know, you know Glenn is trying to make trouble for Al and he only succeeds in making trouble for Glenn. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he's very very defensive, Glenn. He 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 literally says to Gilruth, "I saved the program," right. He says that Al is unfit, right? Which is pretty strong terms for military pilots. Yeah. Um, and then Gilruth turns it back on him and says, actually, you're the one who seems unfit. Right. He basically, right, he turns the tables and says he sees through his, uh, you know, current craziness. Yeah. Sort of like shameless, you know, self-promotion. You know, um, and then uh, he he very definitively, like with almost like a hand chopping motion, like he says to Glenn, like this stops now. Like if you want to fly in space and you want any future in this program, like this stops here and now and forever. Yeah. And And, you know, Glenn is just he's completely screwed now. You know, like he's revealed to everybody, like how bad he can be. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, um, this scene and nothing like this scene appears in the right stuff movie. Yeah. It's right. It's, um, like we were saying, it's sort of not discussed. This is the first time I've seen it sort of explicitly explored. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly, and it's it's a well done scene, and the fact that it takes place in 
in Glenn's living room makes it even stronger, right? You know, this is supposed to be like John's turf where he's at his most confident and he's kind of most humbled there. Yeah. You know, um, we then shift gears uh, uh, to Chris Kraft meeting with uh, uh, poor Deke, poor Deke. Um, and he tells him that he's grounded for his atrial fibrillation. And it's a very, very sympathetic portrayal of Deke, um, who's usually portrayed in more sort of like, I don't know, stern, stern ways. I mean, there's a, there's a, in the From the Earth to the Moon miniseries, um, Deke is played by Nick Searcy. And uh, there are some scenes that explicitly go into the fact that Deke is grounded because of his AFib and about how the other astronauts, you know, perceive him. And in the episode of From the Earth to the Moon about the Apollo 1 fire, at the end of the episode, the Apollo 1 astronauts' wives or widows, they give, uh, they give Deke an astronaut pin, right? Saying like, hey, the guys were going to give this to you after the flight. But, you know, this is, you know, we go straight from Glenn's low point to Deke's low point where Deke finds out, like, he's not going to fly in space. Yeah. Like, they're too worried about him. And the feeling is there's too many other healthy guys that they can send up. So why take a risk on this guy with a bum ticker? Sure. Yeah. Well, right. They're extremely conservative about that stuff. There's no question. Right. And you could, you know, again, you could see it from their point. Like, you know, God forbid he throws a clot. Yeah. Right in space, right? He's in. He goes into AFib. He forms a clot in his in his heart, and he, you know, has a stroke or a pulmonary embolus. Like they're, you know, they, they it would be indefensible if they knew before the flight that he had AFib. Right. Um, the guy who plays Deke does a good job. He looks like Deke, and he, he kind of tries to sound like Deke. Deke had kind of an interesting accent, and and he says he's got a good line. He says, I throw away my commission to join this program. You know, right. like I gave up my military career yeah. for this. And um, Kraft says to Deke, you know, all he can give him, he says, we'll find you a job. And then Deke actually cries. Yeah. Um, and and Shepard sees it. So then right, Shepard realizes a, he's in the clear because they're <laughs> right. going after Deke. Right. Yeah. He he sees the whole thing through the through the blinds. Yeah. Right. And in a heartbeat, he realizes like not only is he okay, but he was a complete jackass to confront D. Yeah. Right. Like D kept his confidence, didn't say anything. Um, and he was, you know, he was a douche to her, basically. Right. They probably didn't call people douches back in the sixties, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would have been the sixties term for that? I don't know. Um I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um and then uh Al hightails it before they can see him, right? They're so in, you know, uh Kraft and Deke are so engrossed in this terrible conversation that they don't notice Al at the window, like literally two feet away blocking the light and then uh al just sort of like he sort of runs away himself uh, and realizes that he has just narrowly dodged a bullet in his own mind and then uh the episode sort of wraps up very negatively where uh there's a, a very there's a very kind of upsetting scene where a let's just say a cool annie is gifted a gravy boat by john for their wedding anniversary and she's so disappointed in him like it's all she can do to just sit there and take the stupid gravy boat right even worse than being an immoral asswipe he gave her a crappy gravy boat 
Well, you know, it's an interesting moment, too, because, you know, for the whole show up to this point, Annie has been unique among the wives in that she has been shown as like the one who didn't have to worry about her husband, right? Like, well, the other guys are out drinking and whoring and, you know, drag racing their Corvettes, you know, like Annie didn't have to worry. And now suddenly Annie, you know, like John comes with his own set of liabilities and they're different than Gordo's and they're, you know, they're different than Gus's, but you know, like he's no saint as much as he would like to see himself that way. For sure. And then even more negatively in the middle of the night, the phone rings and it's bad news. Right. And Shorty Powers gets the call. Right. And he bangs on everybody's door and basically says, Gagarin just orbited. Yeah, he, he does. They don't even know who it is. He just says the Russians put a man in orbit. And actually, what they do, I thought it was pretty cool what they did here. So what ha- what happens in this episode is actually true. Shorty Powers does get the call in real life from a reporter. That's how he found out. A reporter called him for a comment, and then his literal response became the headline. So Shorty says to the reporter, and his exact words are, "We're all asleep down here." Because he was talking about the fact that it's the middle of the night. I can't give you a statement. You're waking me up. Yeah. But people seized on the metaphor, and a lot of papers in the country ran with the headline, we're all asleep down here. Right. <laughs> and that ironically became the best thing for NASA that could have happened. Right, right, right. It's the kick in the ass. But it's a great bit where Shorty then, you know, Shorty's walking around in his bathrobe, and he knocks on Alan Gus's doors and pulls them out onto the balcony and he tells them, like, we've been scooped. Like, you know, and, and you could see it hits Al much harder than it hits Gus. You know, Gus wasn't going to be first anyway. But in that moment, Al loses the mantle of first man in space forever. Right. Right. And he is, he's like, he's mad, but he's so stunned into silence. Like, and the implication is, if Ham hadn't flown, Al would have. You know, like, Ham was the critical delay. Because Al could have been aboard Mercury Redstone, too. And he would have been the first man in space. Yep. And he would have had the right stuff. Jaeger wouldn't have made fun right. of him from across the country. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's hard to overstate how impressive a feat Vostok 1 is. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you know, down in Florida, NASA's, you know, struggling with with the the redstone right a little suborbital you know lob uh and you know the atlas is known to be unreliable at this point and but but at this juncture like the russians have orbited vostok one and gagarin does on their first man flight a complete orbit of the world right it's right. pretty it's an amazing amazing feat like you really have to hand it to them it is, and it's not until next year that Glenn orbits in 62. Right, yeah, because uh, because uh, Glenn and, sorry, Shepard and Grissom have to make their flights. Right, and, um, it, and it took a while for them to get the booster settled down. You know, what's interesting uh, about Vostok 1 is, I don't know if you know this, um, so Gagarin, he ejects from the capsule after re-entry, like when he's when he's dangling from when the capsule is dangling from the parachute, uh, Grissom, sorry, Grissom, Gagarin 
ejects and he actually lands by parachute, which was the plan all along. But the Russians hid that fact for many, many years because the, I I think it's the, uh, whatever the, whatever the organization was that certified sort of space records or the FAI, the Federation Aeronautique Internationale, um, they said that the pilot always had to land with the craft. Um, hmm. But the Russians, they were like, because the flight would be invalidated if 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 the FAI found out that he came down by parachute separate from the capsule. So, which is uh, by they, the way stupid. It is totally stupid. It's also stupid that there's some 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 organization to certify world records beyond the Guinness Book, I guess. Um, but uh, but when the Soviets filled out the paperwork to register the flight with the FAI, um, they it was full of all sorts of falsehoods. And like for example, they they hid the real launch site. They they gave the coordinates of the launch site as somewhere else to hide the actual location uh, of the the true launch site. And then they didn't admit till 1971 that Gagarin ejected and landed separately which is an amazing thing to think about. Yeah, it is. Um, And Gagarin never flies again, you know, sort of like Glenn, you know, after his one flight, he's, he's too valuable um, to risk in space again. And just like Glenn, Gagarin very much wanted to fly again. And he never, ever did. Yeah. He pushed very, very hard for a flight, and he ends up dying in a MiG crash, in a MiG in a, in a modified two-seater MiG fifteen crash. Yeah, he died in nineteen sixty-eight. He was young, which is crazy to think about. You know, um, you know they don't they don't belabor Vostok one a ton um, in the show, um, but I thought, just thought it was worth, you know just mentioning it a little bit uh, because again, you know, this show doesn't really show anything from the point of view of the Russians, whereas the right stuff movie does at times show some key events that happen in the Soviet union here. They just sort of talk about it. Yeah. You know, this episode was crystallized for me, something I'd been thinking about for the last six episodes to an extent. And that is that even though obviously people want to watch a dramatic series, they should have just made a multi-part documentary instead of a dramatic series about this. And they could have put in a bunch of info about the Russian viewpoint, about Vostok 1, about the way things went, about you know all these tidbits they're making dramatic um, aspects of the story out of, like Glenn's letter. They could have done a great documentary and it probably would have cost a lot less. Hmm, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, there's an accompanying documentary on Disney Plus that goes with the show. I haven't uh, seen but, that. But I guess, um, I guess maybe they wanted something, you know, that that was new that they could sell and would be an attraction for people to pay for Disney Plus. I just think those streams don't cross. You know what I mean? Like. You got doc, the documentary side of TV and the and the dramatic side of TV, and I just think there's there's no like you don't see um, uh, what's his name uh, Ken Burns, you know Civil War. You don't see that guy going off to make a sitcom, right? Like, you know, 
And likewise, you don't see Charlie Sheen making, uh, you know, a documentary about sexual harassment or, or for anything else, a documentary about anything else for that matter. Yeah. Um, he probably could make an awesome documentary about like substance abuse uh, and, about and about Hollywood business. And probably you're right. He could make an awesome documentary about anything. <laughs> you know, it's, it's worth mentioning just some other media Um if if anybody who's listening is interested, it is really worth watching First in Space, which is um, a Russian uh, docudrama that sort of dramatizes Vostok One, and it's it's extremely well done. Like the Soviets have made like more than their share of some good space movies. Uh, Salyut Seven is another one that comes to mind, but. Um, First in space, it's sometimes it's called Gagarin semicolon first in space, depending on how you find it. It it looks amazing. Like it's the real kind of like A-list version uh of this uh from a Russian point of view. And it just, you know, it's literally it's the right stuff in Russia. It's exactly what was happening around the world at the exact same time that this is made. And the flight link, sequence. Uh, I'm putting a link to it also down. Yeah. There. And the the launch sequence, which is on YouTube, the launch sequence. Uh, is it's just incredible like it looks great and and they they really really put a lot of effort to detail and the guy who plays Gagarin really looks like him like it's it's I watched it it's obviously subtitled I watched I think the entire movie on YouTube like I know I didn't get it on one of the pay services for a while it was just up free on YouTube and I watched the entire movie on YouTube so but it, you know it's really like if you're watching this show pause this show and watch first in space and then come back to the show because it, it literally, it, it's, it, it dovetails with this exact moment. So you're perfect to, to sort of see it now. Right. Everything's on YouTube. Yeah. Reddit on Reddit. There's a subreddit called free movies on YouTube that helps you sort of find things that are on listed on YouTube with, uh, you know, wonky titles. Like they don't want to put the title of the movie up, but there's the movie. I don't know. Like, and I don't know. It's, it's all out in the open. Like I'm not saying anything that's secret. Like it's a subreddit called Free Movies on YouTube. Um. Anyway, but uh, you know, once again, like this show. Um, I think to get back to the right stuff on Disney, you know, the show is getting better every episode, but they still haven't quite figured out how to have fun. Um, and they also some, somehow manage never to be patriotic, like. I don't know, maybe I'm old enough and square enough that I would have liked the little flag waving, maybe just a little, you know what I'm saying? Like at some point in the series and, you know, like as we're going to see soon, you know, when Al flies uh, his Freedom 7 flight, like it's portrayed very, very differently than we've seen this in, for example, From the Earth to the Moon or the 1983 Right Stuff movie. Like it's the least patriotic portrayal of the event. I know, it's just sort of interesting. What do you think? I think the show was really made to be a drama about the personal lives, the family story, the, sto the, the story of the astronaut office, the story of, um, you know, Gilruth and Kraft. Um, I think it's, it's a much closer focus thing, uh, piece than, than, larger scope portrayals mm -hmm. and that's why yeah it, i guess it's certainly much more personal i think that's what they're going for they wanted to make 
a more dramatic, um, I mean, I'm not saying this in a chauvinistic way, but, you know, a more sort of chick-friendly type dramatic series than the typical, uh, you know, uh, technologically focused. Number one focus is dork technology. Number two focus is history slash political slash patriotic focus. Um, yeah, and I, and I guess that's um, you know that's a fine edge for them to walk on because the truth of the matter is, ninety five percent of the people that are going to watch the show are going to be men, most likely. You know what I'm saying? So if they bend too far to try to make it, you know, uh, appealing to women, they risk alienating the core audience a little bit. Oh, for sure. So you know, I don't know. Like, I mean, I guess. It's, I guess it's a tricky line to cross, but I also guess in 2020, you know, they can't really, they can't make it super male oriented, even if, even if that's what the, for example, what the, who the book was geared to and who the 83 movie was geared to, um, you know, that maybe they just don't feel like they can get away with that. Hmm. I don't know. I think they still should have made a documentary, especially this day and age when people will watch them. I mean, you know, I, I just think, I think they, that's what they should have done. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't hold it. I certainly don't hold it against them that they made a, a dramatic miniseries. I mean, we, we've gone on ad nauseum about from the earth to the moon and how much we loved, you know, you know, essentially this same format done there. Right. Um, but uh, so I don't hold it against them that they did it. But again, like I think at some point they kind of forgot that they could have fun or a little bit of humor or a little bit of patriotism. I mean, for God's sake, it's it's America's space program. Like it's it is inherently a patriotic and flag wavy kind of thing. Hmm. You know. Well, I mean, you and I were kids. You know, in the 80s, I mean, I remember you and I were sitting next to each other in class when Columbia flew on STS-1. And, you know, the excitement around Columbia pales in excitement that, that the Mercury flights generated. Yeah, we were pretty you excited. Know? And that's what I'm saying. Like, we were so stoked for that STS-1 flight. We watched it. I remember we watched it in class. Yeah. In Mr. Blair's room. <laughs> They opened up the separate the partition between our class and Mr. Blair's class. Yeah. And we watched it. Anyway, on, on a TV, on an actual color television that was suspended on a bracket. Remember that? Yep. Oh, my God. That must have cost a fortune. I know. That TV was turned on about twice a year, but for, but for STS-1, they, they turned it on. Oh, all right. Well, we should probably wrap there. Yep. Um, just two episodes left in the season. Just two episodes. Um, uh, things really move fast in the last two episodes, so it'll be interesting uh, to discuss how they sort of uh, sort of wrap up the first season of the show. And the for the show wraps. Uh, I'm just jumping ahead without giving anything away. The show wraps in a in a way that very very clearly conveys that they are going to be making uh, a season two. Uh, but uh, I assume that'll only be if the ratings were good enough. I haven't I haven't looked online to see if the show was renewed for season two. I guess the question is, did Disney get enough subscribers that they attributed to the show? They haven't announced anything yet, as far as I can yeah. tell. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I know a lot of people who 
watch a lot of uh, streaming content. I don't know a lot of people who are watching this, so I'd be curious if it's getting a lot of views. Mm-hmm. You we'll know, like know. this this show is probably getting one, you know, eighty fourth of what The Mandalorian gets. Oh, not even that much. You know, or 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 Clone Wars or something like that. So. We'll see. We'll see. All right, let's break there, um, and we will be back uh, to discuss episode uh, seven next. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Doug.